Welcome to State of Mind, the podcast that brings together ancient wisdom with modern psychology, neuroscience, psychedelics, and so much more in service of our collective healing and evolution. My name is Julian Royce, and I work as a trauma-informed therapist specializing in somatic, EMDR, and psychedelic-assisted therapies. I also teach mindfulness and meditation in a way that is non-sectarian and which seeks to both honor tradition and be informed by contemporary science in our modern culture. How was that intro? I just recorded that here for the first time, and I'm thinking of making it, or another version of it, the standard intro here at A State of Mind Podcast. For those of you watching the video of this, you can see I'm recording this in a new space, which is the basement of my house, rather than my office, where I typically record for the podcast. And you can also see that I've invited God here, whom you can see behind me in this beautiful, high-quality print of Michelangelo's famous centerpiece in the Sistine Chapel painting. This, of course, is showing the moment in which God created the first man, Adam. And it was a gift from the one and only Dr. Robert Love, who was a guest on this podcast many moons ago. If you missed those episodes with him, please check it out. He recently got 1 million followers on TikTok and is having a lot of success sharing lots of informative videos around neuroscience there. And thank you, God, for being here. <laughs> so today's guest is the Reverend Bunan Brown. Like many of the guests on my podcast, he's someone that I have a personal connection with. He's a friend of mine. We met over 10 years ago at Naropa University. And he has since gone on to become a Zen priest, training under Junpo Roshi, and he's also become an expert on attachment theory. Attachment theory is a psychological, evolutionary, and biological, or what Dr. Dan Siegel would call interpersonal neurobiological theory that helps explain human relationships and our needs there. I did a long two-hour podcast all about attachment theory last summer with my fellow therapist Braxton Dudley, so definitely check that one out to learn more. It was very informative, I got a lot of good feedback on it. Um, and this particular conversation with Bunan was far-ranging. It was fascinating for me personally, and it really goes deep into some fundamental questions I have been contemplating for some time now. Questions around the intersection of our attachment systems and meditation practice, the nature of our minds, the role and influence of culture and phenomena such as social media, and the roles technology are having on us, and many other topics. Please check out the show notes below to learn more about Bunan and his offerings. And as always, you can support this podcast at patreon.com backslash a state of mind. You can learn more about me at a state of mind counseling.org. You can send me a message through a state of mind podcast.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Julian Ocean with two N's. Without further ado, I bring you the Reverend Bunan Brown. So I'm here today with Bunan Brown. Bunan, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Julian. Yeah, yeah. it's great to be here with you. <laughs> here in my new house. Mm -hmm. First uh, recording in the new space. Yeah, this is going to work pretty well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, we first met, I think, at Naropa University mm -hmm. yeah. a long time yes. ago. And you've, I know you've had a background, a lot of experience with Zen Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share a little bit with us how you got into meditation, what your path with that has been like? Yeah. Um, my early 20s, I was, you know, just being a 20-something-year-old, um, <laughs> working in restaurants and a lot of partying, a lot of drinking, stuff like that. And grew up in a family that didn't have much um, emotional intelligence, so I didn't grow up knowing, like, how I was feeling. Mm -hmm. 
And so there was a lot of just kind of like pain and suffering that was building up over the years. And eventually that just like swelled to a, to a point and like my life just wasn't working the way it was. And mm. I just realized I had to make some pretty big shifts and like stop drinking, stop going out. And then really like had all this like free time, <laughs> free time and money on my hands. So I was like, I need to do something. And so that's funny. One of my, I remember one of my Buddhist meditation teachers said, if you give up all the distractions, then Dharma practice is easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But so what a lot of people when they're you know drinking, using drugs, partying a lot, they reach a point of crisis or mm-hmm. things feel unworkable to use language from AA, right? Or mm-hmm. they hit bottom. Yeah. Did you have that kind of experience? Yeah, I'd hit um bounced off the bottom a few times in that experience. Like my like peak of dabbling in alcohol back in the day, I'd get caught up to like drinking two fists of vodka a night, which is, you know, it's pretty substantial. Um, two and, fifths? Yeah. That's was, a lot. It was pretty substantial. Like, I started working on bars when I was 20, so I was, became a was like professional um, professional drinker pretty early, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, and Yeah, that's really something, like, people, if you're working at a bar, it's obviously easier to drink. You're around it all the time. Yeah, and it's just the um, culture of, of the culture. restaurants and um, bars and stuff like that and yeah um yeah there's points where i just like bounced off the bounced off the bottom a few times i was like this isn't working and i need to i need to do something else mm. and i was like quit that whole lifestyle and was like looking like what did i what did i used to appreciate because like hanging out in my mom's basement watching tv wasn't quite the, the <laughs> life I, the life i wanted to pursue at that point yeah. and i looked back and was like oh when i was like a young uh as a young kid, I used to like to read a lot. I was like, okay, let me let me pick that back up. Um, this is something to do because I know I used to like to do that. So let's let's dive back in. And I was really fortunate to be like just down the street from a metaphysical bookshop. Oh, okay. um, and that was like one of the first places like I really dove in and started to mm-hmm. get exposed to, um, let's say, spiritual ideas in any way, shape, or form. And then just my my inquisitive mind just like took over and I just started following all these breadcrumbs along the journey and path and trying to figure out what this whole um, consciousness thing was. And (laughs) it's good inquiry. (laughs) That was good. Like originally I didn't even know, I didn't understand the difference between conscience and conscious. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't like had to figure out how to like write those two words. Like I just hadn't been exposed to anything like our conscious, like sense of morality, right and wrong. Is yeah, that kind of what you were yeah. Well, yeah. conscience, conscious, like, um, yeah, sense of morality, right or wrong, and then there's the piece of like, what is awareness itself? Terms yeah. I'd use these days, and like, they didn't have a distinction in there. And that's not that's not a small point. I think our culture and language, you know, our language of our culture, English language, very fluid mm-hmm. and adaptable, um, malleable, but like we don't have exact definitions for these kinds of words. It's pretty yeah. new. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen a lot of teachers now make a distinction between consciousness and awareness, but I'm aware of the, I mean, that's, that could be useful in the context of a certain person teaching, but there's nothing in the English language dictionary that's necessarily going to yeah. spell that out for somebody who's trying to figure this out on their own, right? Yeah, so. yeah not, even, not even close. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like in that exploration of like, okay, what is this conscious, consciousness thing? Like came across um, Cosmic Consciousness with Ken Wilber. Oh, nice. And I was like, what's this? <laughs> and um, everything kind of took a took a left turn after that. Ken Wilber, yeah, mm-hmm. a powerful writer and thinker and mm-hmm. synthesizer. Yeah, um, it's had a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being able to see all of the 
like spiritual maps laid out next to each other. And so he's like, okay, these, these ones go here, these ones go there. Okay. And then like, he's got such a Buddhist background that it's getting exposed to that. And I was like, okay, what's, what's yeah. this, what's going on here? And like started my, my Buddhist exploration from there. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's something precious and special about when someone first is exploring spirituality, meditation, consciousness, and mm-hmm. it's honestly a kind of vulnerable, it's a vulnerable kind of place to be at because there's so much, especially today, there's so much information out there. Mm-hmm. And um, you want to be able to find the right kind of information and the right kind of help. And yeah. that can be tricky. And, and, that, yeah. and that's why like getting, like seeing these maps laid out next to each other was like so helpful for me Yeah, because I was like dabbling and exploring in these different traditions um, like the metaphysical bookshop I was close <laughs> to, like they didn't have much on Buddhism, but there was all this Wiccan and Native American and this like all sorts of stuff there. And like I explored it, but I was like, okay, what's where does this stuff go? Well, um, there's something in you that the Buddhist teachings resonated with. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. When I started, um, I started reading some of the text and just like it's like seeing okay, this stuff is actually speaking to me, and particularly like the Zen tradition like there's something about how it's how the language inside of that just like really speaks to my experience mm-hmm. and just like dove in pretty deeply after that and started looking for a teacher and mm. um eventually eventually stumbled upon uh, junpo roshi oh amazing yeah yeah and it was just like this guy <laughs> how do i become more like this guy i've shared a little bit about him on this podcast but i did an, a great retreat with him and mm-hmm. had a big impact on me mm-hmm. yeah and i wish i had done more but I'm grateful for that kind mm-hmm. of experience. Um, how did you how did you find him and what did you did you meet him in person when you had that like this guy kind of moment? Um, no, I actually met him first or saw him first on uh, Integral Life. Um, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> like it's one of the first interviews or early interviews they put out there and it was with him. Yeah, it was uh, he was talking about um, his experiences like window pain LSD and spiritual awakening and stuff like that because he, he was the head of a family in the 60s and 70s that synthesized like the world's purest lsd mm. at the time and he had you know quite a, quite a journey with that and i was like <laughs> who is this guy yeah um, yeah so i had keith martin smith as a guest on this podcast yeah. actually uh, twice and he wrote a biography mm-hmm. of him i think with him i mean obviously he was working with him and as a student of his but mm-hmm. that story one of those stories <laughs> in there that was so amazing is he was in the san francisco in the 60s with the Grateful Dead and mm-hmm. like learning drumming with them and stuff and selling tons of LSD. Mm-hmm. And then at some point he had some like beachfront kind of apartment or house and he was like, I'm just going to take this huge amount of LSD and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the way he tells it was suicide. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you want to talk about that? Do you remember that? Um, I don't know it well enough to like really get on the inside of it. It's, <laughs> just, it's in his yeah. open book. So it's really, it's got a really good just, description in there. Yeah. I yeah. just remember, um, it was an ordeal, you know, it's a trial and it was a super intense experience for him, but he woke up eventually uh, coming down from it and was like laying naked on the beach. And he's like, I have to go to India. And like that thought was just like ringing through his head. <laughs> so that was the start of his, <laughs> yeah. the start of his more spiritual journey. Um, yeah. Amazing. So then you got into Zen practice. Was it with Jumbo Roshi? Was it yeah, was with, with Jumbo. I'd like said a little bit in the, Missouri Zen Center in St. Louis, but there's things didn't quite resonate with me around practice there. And um, one of the things that's important is like sort of the level of development of the teacher. Mm. Um, and so that's why I was like specifically seeking out people like 
teachers, Buddhist teachers that were integrally informed, particularly in that part of my life because it was such a big piece. So you, you had that orientation from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, like I did a lot of reading and study before like got into integral, and then I was able to start to actually practice it. And the Junpo was one of the places where I like really first came to uh, fruition around, okay, I can actually start practicing this instead of just reading about it because mm. kind of pointless to just read about these things. Interesting. Um, after a point. And did my first retreat with him in 2010 outside of LA. Okay. Yeah. And that was, that was a really just beautiful and powerful experience. And um, one of the requisites for getting into that is I had to go do the mankind project weekend. Oh yeah. Um, So that was, that was a kickstarted like my men's uh, men's work uh, history, I guess. And that's a weekend in the wilderness or Um, in nature. That was more like a ranch kind of setting. We were most, okay. mostly inside for it. Um, but they bring, brought together 100, 150 guys and take us to this whole oh, wow. weekend initiation. A lot of guys. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Jumpo was involved with that, right? Uh, he, he used to be back in the day. Uh, he was very much um, connected with like the founders of it. And his teaching actually originated in the program where all these the guys wanted um, him to do like Zen retreats. And so we started doing originally for the Mankind Project, um, brothers in there, and like sort of his sangha got birthed out of that. And so a lot of the higher ups of the um, Mankind Project are close students of his. And so I guess I see some that. of the really beautiful yeah. conversations there, like some of the presidents and stuff like that, okay. like in the order. And um, do you want to share a little bit about what the Mankind Project is? Yeah, Mankind Project is. I think it's they have like sixty thousand. Let's say members or initiates worldwide that have gone through. Um, That's amazing, six thousand. Yeah, yeah the new warrior training adventure, I believe the weekend is called, um, where they usually like bring men that have never done any kind of men's work, and they'll come for a weekend, and you don't know much about it going in, which is really nice. And then there's, I mean, there'll be 20, 30 men like holding the space for us, and they'll take us through all sorts of. Um, like sort of mythopoetic journey experiences because mm-hmm. a lot of it's like based off of like Robert Bly and Iron John and stuff like that. So there's um, there's a big like mythopoetic piece inside of it's beautiful mankind project and sort of kind of start to teach about shadow and how we need to integrate this stuff and like these those feeling things I mentioned earlier like those exist <laughs> <laughs> and so it's to some men out there <laughs> yeah yeah. I mean, it's for a lot of men, especially men going into that program, like they just really haven't had much experience of being able to be emotionally um, vulnerable or open, especially with other men. Mm. And so there's a lot of sharing circles and a lot of, a lot of ways to like drop in together and um, start to actually, you know, touch into these hearts and yeah. like cast off some of the burdens that we've had to carry for, for a lifetime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's well said. And, and then eventually you became a, a Zen priest, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I took Jukai, which is the formal steps, pretty pretty quickly after that first um, retreat. I was like, "Oh, this is this is the thing." <laughs> I want to dive in pretty deep with this. Yeah. And uh, next step on the path in the tradition is the uh, taking the lay priest vows. Um, what well, do you want to share with those are real quick? Um, well, we have the thirteen precepts, and in the tradition, the lay priest. Um, deepening as like you know we 
recommit to the vows that we took originally. And there's there's not more that we put on put okay. on top of that. Um, but there's a piece of um, going to like deepen into the practice to be able to more skillfully like facilitate the Mondo Zen process, which is a big piece inside of the tradition, and then start to hold and grow a sangha and like build the space for people to come and practice and hmm. um, skillfully, uh, ideally, guide people, <laughs> guide people into into um, their own practices and into their okay. own capacities for awakening and feeling as waking up in this life. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Tibetan Buddhist traditions that I'm more familiar with, there's like five lay precepts. Mm-hmm. Not killing, not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct, not lying, I didn't already say that one, and then not clouding the mind with intoxicants, not getting drunk. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and Junpo, he would spend a lot of time working with the language mm-hmm. of these things and mm-hmm. the, the precepts that we have in the tradition. Um, he takes away the don'ts. He takes away the no's. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, and like re-languages in this really beautiful um, prose where it's... Um, so it's a positive statement. Yeah, it's a much more positive statement. Instead of instead of nice. um, squashing or refraining, it's like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to live in this pathway, this ideal, versus like, I'm not going to do that. Because one of the things that he saw in his practice is he did the six months or six years of training in the... Um, monastery and he would, in his own experience as well like he would go through and see a lot of practitioners that had deep insight but then there was this really repressive um part of things and that's part of what he saw in his own practice he's like okay i can have this deep insight but then i have to repress like all this all mm-hmm. these experiences or parts of the personality and they didn't get worked in the practice and so he's he spent the next like 20 years uh, working on that and, amazing yeah so I think that's so interesting. So it's interesting in part because I mean Jimpo did a lot of very traditional Zen practice mm-hmm. and then looked at, you know, kind of evaluated it kind of critically, like you're sharing, and created Mondo Zen mm-hmm. for more the more contemporary world for modern people, bringing in things like psychology and mm-hmm. working with people like Ken Wilbur and integral theory, right? So it's just like a passion of mine to get more, you know, to explore this terrain. But it seems to be true that you can have, like you just said, deep insight in meditation or spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. And that insight doesn't meet some of our wounded parts or some of our conditioning. Mm-hmm. I like using the hand gestures to kind of illustrate that sometimes. Yeah, it's like, yeah. how do we get this to meet this? Mm-hmm. Instead of having this deep insight, deep meditation, experience of clarity, stillness, you know, however your meditation practice unfolds. But then... You're screaming in traffic, or you're yeah, like yeah, flipping out in somewhere. Yeah, right? still having all of the afflictive tendencies that yeah. come forward, and that's been a really big part of my journey of looking at that. Of like, okay, what is, what is the rest of this? Like, we'll say we can have these awakening experiences, but if it doesn't touch the personality or the ego, um, which or the sense itself, like, what good is it to have these, these realizations or these experiences when they they then get filtered through this through this murky, I'll say murky water, <laughs> and that exploration is like over the years, like led me into like deep attachment work um, and looking, looking at attachment as the, as the origin origination of the sense of self. Mm-hmm. And that sense of self is it's so emotional. It's so conditioned. It's so ingrained into our experience prior to the cognitive mind being online because mm-hmm. it's most of the stuff's imprinted like prior to two years old. Mm-hmm. 
And so the foundations, like the root of our sense of self, the very things that shape us are much more emotional in nature. They're much more, we can say reactive. Like it's like the origins of the sense of self are the ways we learn to navigate the world and keep ourselves safe and respond to threats and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And if we grow up in a household that's, we'll say, not securely attached or not safe, we learn all of these ways to self-regulate and get our needs met that when we get older, it might not work as well. And like, yeah. those, those are the things that it's like, okay, this conditioned sense of self that we've um, grown up with our whole life, like awakening practice doesn't really do much to that. Hmm. Um, unless you, unless you're like super, super deep and just cut it off at the root, which is a very rare thing in, in the West. Um, and so there's this question of like, how do we actually look at that and start to reshape that stuff that was conditioned into us so early? Mm -hmm. And that's been like the exploration of my professional work in the in the world over the yeah yeah nice handful of years. Yeah, it's beautiful. And you've mm -hmm. really gotten deep into the attachment work, like you're sharing. You've studied them a lot. Mm -hmm. You're helping clients with it. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's uh, one of the things you said that's really interesting. I think is true is that our our sense of self obviously develops early on. And it develops in relation to other people, mm -hmm. primarily our caregivers, right? So, yep. and apparently that was, I'm not an expert in existentialist philosophy, but apparently that's something Sartre, if I'm saying right, <laughs> the French philosophers <laughs> and some of the existentialists pointed out that our sense of who we are exists in relationship. And um, if you take that away, in a sense, you can maybe, you know, through Zen practice or Buddhist practice or spiritual practice, you'd have an insight into no self. But even without that, there's a sense of like the self can dissolve. It can kind of not be there from time to time. Mm -hmm. um, like there's a way in which it exists in the reflection of the other. I think that's how the existentialists talk about it. Yeah, there's her sense of self is shaped directly like through our relationships, our first relationship with our family. Mm -hmm. And that piece around the emotional regulation, how do we get our needs met, how do we navigate the world is just a direct um, right brain to right brain download that we get from our mother and father so early on. Mm. And if that is not in alignment with like you know, how reality is, um, if it's basically, if it's trying to protect itself, doesn't know how to get its needs met. And if it's not like safe and open, mm -hmm. um, like, like secure attachment is a state of like openness and just like, Ooh, I can like relax and just, be present instead of having to have all these contortions and distortions in my in my field and that's so shaped through relationship mm -hmm. and we see the impacts of our attachment so easily in relationships like the people most people that come to work with me are doing it because of their intimate relationships and mm -hmm. it's easiest to see our attachment patterning in those close relationships mm -hmm. and then it sort of um, ripples out from there it, pretty much impacts everything that we do in our life because it's, it's more than just intimate relationship. Like, how do I get my needs met? It's like, oh, how do I relate to all of this? Right. And we very much can hit states that, like, let's say the self drops away or very, a lot of things drop away and it gets really easy to hang out in, but then we like, have to talk to people at some point. <laughs> <laughs> like, we have to go off of the mat and go into the world. Yeah. Like, get off the cushion and go back into the world. And then then we're relying on that sense of self again to actually interact with the world. And if that has the, um, let's say, the distortions uh, in it, um, it makes it really hard to actually stay open. 
because mm-hmm. so much of the insecure attachment strategies are all about protecting. Because um, we mm. didn't know how to open up in certain ways, we didn't get seen, didn't get met, we're right. safe, all of that. And so it, like, we use these patterns, these techniques that we learned before we could even talk or reflect or think about, mm-hmm. think about our experience that are held in the body, held in the emotions. Mm-hmm. And try to navigate the world with that. And if we're, you know, we can do a whole bunch of practice, but then if we get in the car and we start yelling at people, like we lose so much of our, of our, we'll say our spiritual progress because it just melts right out of our body in that heartbeat. Full disclosure, I use that example because I tend to have that tendency sometimes. Um, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, yeah, it's a, it's a rich conversation. There's a lot of nuance and subtlety. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting that in the, again, I'm studying more in the Indian, Tibetan, mm-hmm. Buddhist tradition, but they, you know, in the classic Mahayana teachings that I, you know, as best I can remember, there's like these 10 stages of the Bodhisattva, or sometimes there's 12 or 13 stages. But one of the things that I remember from studying that stuff is like the, what was called the meditative equipoise, when the mm-hmm. Bodhisattva, the awakened being, like that's someone who's had an experience of a, a legitimate experience mm-hmm. of awakening, yep. when they enter their meditation, that meditative experience, that meditative equipoise is basically the same in all the stages. So what's changing is the post-meditation, mm-hmm. the period after you meditate. So they go into the meditative equipoise, they have the realization of emptiness, of wisdom, of compassion, however you want to talk about it, this awakening experience. But then they interact with the world, and that's like mm-hmm. the piece that gets increasingly refined. And mm-hmm. according to the tradition, eventually this meditation and this post-meditation become one and the same thing, like one taste, like yep. the same experience, the same insight is continually there. Mm-hmm. And that would be the definition of a Buddha, a fully awakened one who's always acting in compassion and yep. in alignment with the world. And there's no nothing to protect anymore. Yep. So that word protections, you know, I think that's a good word. Yeah. Word defensiveness. There's nothing to defend anymore. Yeah. And I'll say I've, I've got a I'll say a very healthy um, exposure to Tibetan Buddhism. Um taking a pretty nice, nice and deep exploration into that world. Partially because I learned um, in Zen, you know, you can get like two sentences of two sentences of instruction on something, and then that's what you get. Yeah. <laughs> and then you go over to Zen Buddhism, and they have like multiple volumes and commentaries about those two sentences. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is helpful. To, yeah, they to, balance each other out that yeah, way. <laughs> this is helpful to unpack this. It's like so, infinite instructions in the Tibetan Buddhism. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so I got a really good piece of exposure to that. And after I started to like really take the dive into the Western attachment literature. I went back and looked at the um, Tibetan Buddhist instructions. And in the very, in the preliminary practices from my reading of it, there was, um, there's basically secure attachment is assumed. Yeah. This is something we've talked about in the past. That's so fascinating to me. And so what you see is that culturally in traditional pre-modern Asian or probably all over the world cultures, there was more secure attachment was more than norm. Yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah, like the in um, yeah in the like pre-modern cultures, like non-Western um, societies, like growing up in a village, surrounded by your whole family, like having these long traditions was was the norm. Mm-hmm. So you'd grow up with your entire extended family. Like the village would have been like where you live instead of just the house, and were disconnected from the people that were around, mm-hmm. and you would have had that. Um, level of attunement that was necessary to grow a securely attached child mm-hmm. um, that would be much more the norm than it is in the in the western um, societies these days 
And um, was this, with that being the case, it was just it's just easier to actually like be connected with the world, be connected with life, feel safety, be able to feel seen and known by the the tribe or the village that's around you because you're mm. around them your entire life. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. Yeah, I think it's a kind of tragedy or catastrophe of our modern mm-hmm. contemporary world that we've created like unwittingly. Like it's very much in the shadow. I think a lot of people, more and more people are starting to see this and talk about it mm-hmm. in different ways. But yeah, Gabor Mate's got a uh, lot of good recent yeah. pieces around that. I mean, clearly there's a growing awareness that alienation, isolation, overly individualistic culture mm-hmm. tends towards those extremes and they're not, they're not optimal. They're not the yeah, healthy. They, they're not the best. Yeah. They're, they're very suboptimal for, yeah. um, the best of human flourishing and there's been a lot of great stuff that comes out of modernity but there's also this like this disconnection this profound alienation and depression and just lack of connection that that people experience and you know um in you know in like tibetan culture where like compassion was ingrained into the into the Mm. into the life into just village life like it was just much more there much more available and much more of a way that you grew up like my emotional like emotional education in school was like there was just like a piece of paper taped to the wall that said care (laughs) (laughs) and like that was it do you remember that yeah (laughs) like literally yeah yeah Yeah, they'd like swap them out like one like once a month they'd put like two different things and there was there would be no teaching no class nothing like that little inspirational poster <laughs> yeah and that was that was that was it for for emotional education yeah i think this is such a big subject such an important point mm-hmm. and i think our culture like people like gabor mate are doing such a great job bringing more awareness you know things can shift but there's a lot of gravitational pull partly from our economic system i think to mm-hmm towards individualism and giving everyone as much consumerism and choice as possible. And it's kind of like all about what makes you happy. And it's like missing something with that, mm-hmm. that kind of view. Yeah. It's like the soul is taken out of it. And like, how do we yeah. actually, how do we actually experience like true equanimous, like happiness? And then we bring that into the world and that being the, let's say the currency that we could all explore and actually cultivate with each other versus like, we need to buy things in order to be happy. We need to have the white picket fence and, Keep up with the Joneses and all all those all yeah. those beautiful little scenes that we have. Yeah, <laughs> the giant home that makes you more isolated because you're everyone can have their own room or their own. You know, it's mm-hmm. you're a family of three or four and you're in a four or five thousand square foot home. Yeah, you know, and every, if you have your own car, you're in your car isolated. There's all these ways in which we're. It's interesting with the and I do the I use them a lot myself with the earbuds. Mm-hmm. Again, like everyone's literally you know in their own world. <laughs> it's like hey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, um, you know, there's pros and cons to it. It's not all bad. Yeah. It could be helpful. And if you're, like, wanting to dive into, um, like, contemplative practice, spiritual practice, like, in my path of it, my exploration, like, I've just really started to see, like, how relational it really becomes. Mm. Like, to, like, really feel safe in our body and feel safe in the world. Like that's a very relational um, experience where it's like, wow, I can like mm. really reach out and both feel life, which can be a really deep, deep reservoir. If like we really touch into the feeling of being itself and like, yeah. have that blossom forth and see like, oh, like everything is like 
complete in a very real sense. Like everything, like everything's here, and then the rest of this outside stuff just becomes icing on the cake, if you will. Mm-hmm. And you can like very much go in and have the have that recognition or realization. Um, That's a great point. Yeah, for yourself in your inside of your own heart, and then we bring that into our relationships. And yeah, then we can like bring our awakening into the world and into into the connections that we have, and recognize that none of us are separated in any real way like if we if we really start to investigate um, the belief of like i'm sitting over here and you're sitting over there we can just deconstruct that whole thing until we recognize that it's like oh wait there's no actual i over here there's no like mm. you there that i'm using as a concept and that belief that so many people have that we're separated in this space like falls away and we can recognize that we are all profoundly interconnected and we're like touching each other in just really intimate ways, just mm-hmm. with the way we're being in the world. Like the, I'm talking about like the tuning fork thing, um, mm-hmm. where it's like if my heart is really open and I'm like, let's say, blazing with wakefulness, like other people can feel that and they'll start to tune to it, even if they don't know they are or not. Yeah. Just like if somebody's in a really bad mood. You can walk in the room and you're like, whoa. You can <laughs> you feel can, it. You can feel it yeah. uh, really quickly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The tone of voice, the facial expressions, there's a lot of communication mm-hmm. happening beyond the content. Yeah, vast majority. Um, absolutely, yeah. And I want to come back to the culture piece, but mm-hmm. one thing you just spoke to, I've been, actually, you're in this class too. I'm in this year-long training with Dr. John Churchill. Mm-hmm. And he's done such a fantastic job of teaching meditation from the ground up, starting with really cultivating, creating that sense of safety in yourself and mm-hmm. your body. Yep. And so I just think it's like to have that as the foundation, it's very psychologically informed. It's mm-hmm. totally in alignment with what you're talking about, the attachment theory. Mm-hmm. And it's like creating this healthy foundation in a sense, like a secure attachment with yourself. Yep. Like, would you say that? Yeah, that's very much what he's working on. Yeah. Cultivating in there in his first entire first weekend. Um, Teaching was all around basically embodied safety is the way I would say it. Um, but that's so much what um, healthy, secure attachment is a secure sense of self. Mm. And we want to have that as foundation. Otherwise, as we start to go deeper into these contemplative practices, we start t- like touching more and more into sort of the roots of the sense of self. We start feeling the traumas, the memories, all the repressed stuff that hangs out inside of our system. And if we don't have the ability to sort of turn, face it, and process that and know what safety is, um, things get really, really challenging. Yeah. Things start going sideways really, really quickly. And it's a piece of like really knowing what embodied safety is. Like working with my clients Mm -hmm. is one of the things that I've seen is like people grow up in their household with a particular experience of what safety um, is or means mm-hmm. for them on just on the just physiological level. Mm-hmm. And if you don't grow up with an actual loving, attuned, protective family, which a lot of people haven't, that definition for you can be um, very much less than what it could actually be. So people will come in right. and have their innate, um, we'll say innate definition of what safety is, and it could really just be 10% of what's available. And we, yeah, but they don't, it's hard to know that. Yeah. Oh, like they, that's the have, water you're swimming in. Yeah, they have no idea. Yeah. There's so many people that have like really, just we'll say, atrocious upbringings. They're like, oh, it wasn't that bad. And then you look under the hood <laughs> and it's like, whoa. <laughs> um, no, that was, that was actually 
really bad. Mm. Um, so would that, then, would that be connected with an avoidant tendency to say, "Oh, that wasn't that bad." Um, yeah, that's a, that's very classic. Um, that's like, oh, I didn't like my, my life wasn't that bad. And it's like wasn't that bad for you, but also if we just don't know how good it can be, yeah, like we we don't know. Um, and so, like, really early in a, any kind of practice of living, but definitely in a uh, contemplative path, like really being able to establish that felt sense of safety in the body. Yeah, as a foundation. Yeah, and something that we can feel, that we can know. And in couples, like with couples work, like I really recommend this kind of stuff where it's like Mm. being able to feel really safe with each other and having that as a practice that you revisit time and time again, like multiple times through the day with your your partner and with yourself. It's beautiful. So that you can feel when stuff starts to get wobbly, whenever something starts to pop up that isn't, that doesn't feel safe or doesn't feel quite right. It's like, what's that? Hmm. And most people just live in that mm-hmm. and just don't know what actually is to be like really relaxed, really open, mm-hmm. feel really safe, be able to like co-regulate with your partner. And then like going into a contemplative hmm. practice with that base instead of being in like sympathetic arousal or fight or flight mm-hmm. and trying to go into go into a contemplative practice from that space. Those are two different experiences and you're going to go down two very different paths. And yeah, one has a, the one has a limit, but the safety, um, which is very much openness, which is very much what you're trying to cultivate in like Dzogchen and Mahamudra is profound openness to where there is no, um, yeah. there is no separation in, in, in a very real way. Mm-hmm. Like we have to learn how to open mm-hmm. and like that openness and safety, like go hand in hand. Mm. Yeah. It's amazing. I think, um, I think a lot of people listening to this, if they're into yoga meditation, they can you can reflect on your own path. And I mean, it's certainly true for me. But like to start off, like to, to do if we're in the Buddhist context, if you're doing like what in the traditions are considered advanced practices, I mean, in Zen they start off right away with the formless practice. But if you're doing like this formless sitting practice of the opening that you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, and opening and opening and spacious and spacious and a clear nature of mind and all this kind of meditation. And yet you're coming from that place you're talking about of without the safety, mm-hmm. dysregulation. Um, and that feels like the normal to you. It's, it's almost like you're, I just, I see how that isn't going to work or the path isn't going to unfold in the same way, like in the long run, like you're kind of like mentally, like, Oh, everything is open, or everything is empty, or mm-hmm. but like on a embodied physiological level, there's like this like freak out could be happening, mm-hmm. and there can be like a disconnect there. Yeah, like um, a shakiness. Of, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a real big, real big conversation there. Yeah, <laughs> and we'll, something I've been chewing on. Yeah, 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 yeah. there's very much that very much happens. Like in a Zen practice, we are so much working on the say the openness, formlessness, emptiness, and being able to see the mind for what it is. And it's one of the reasons I like the, the practice of the container so much because it is tightly held. Mm-hmm. And so like we talk about being able to put a snake in a bamboo tube and the snake doesn't know its form until you put it into the bamboo tube and it bounces uh, yeah. up against the sides. <laughs> and that's sort of how we can like see, see the mind and we can see the emotional body and the upheaval and we can create this non-reactivity in the face of Mm-hmm. Um, things that arise and pass away. Mm-hmm. And that's super useful skill um, to be able to just like stay, we'll say, stay, stay centered, stay present. And 
see what's arising in inside of our experience and not be taken over by it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then this, these other aspects that are like traditionally talked about as like shadow, um, like we can't see what we can't see. And that's so much what the attach, attachment conditioning is. Mm-hmm. It's like this feeling of like, how do I stay safe in the world? And if your definition of safety isn't actually what safety is, we have our body, um, our emotions, our animal instincts trying mm-hmm. to adhere to this particular way of being that isn't in alignment with what it's actually trying to get. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, having, like rewriting that so we actually know what safety is and then having this um, relational capacity open so that we can really connect and feel safe and process these like traumas that hang out in the background and run a lot of our run a lot of our behavior <laughs> is a really important piece and that's really hard to do just sitting on the cushion like some of some of it can pop up but because so much of this stuff's relational mm. like it's only going to come out um in a relationship whether that's with therapist or teacher or something like that and like we have to have some of that reflected back to us so we can see it and then start to change it and like like process it in a different way and re-pattern our sense of self so it can be healthy so we can then do this really like mm. profound opening practices and mm. we can open and open and open more instead of like having this system that's installed so early into our um into our life and it takes these little snapshots of like what's going on in the world and runs it through this data bank of what it of experience we've had and then it presents this meaning to us around like oh this is this is what this thing in the world means mm-hmm. and if we have a lot of trauma in that database or we have a lot of um, distortions in that database it gets really um tricky to like stay open in the world and to actually yeah. Like, interact yeah when our whole physiology which is much more powerful than our say conscious mind um, mm-hmm. is like i need to shut down and protect on the visceral level Mm-hmm. And we can we can sit there and watch it happen. <laughs> it's great, um, but it doesn't. That does just just the watching alone doesn't actually change that experience. Mm-hmm. And that's like that combination of like okay, like meditation, contemplative practice is really powerful at seeing this stuff. But then what do we do with it? And we yeah. see it. Yeah, and that's that's where um, I'd say that's where like the Western psychological attachment models get really really good mm. um, there, there's a lot of value in them there like okay what do we actually do with this now that we can see it instead of just saying okay there's this um there's this distortion coming up in my awareness the yeah. afflictive tendencies of mind the afflictions um instead of just repressing them um what can we do to ameliorate or leave them or transform them into to healthy patterns and then that mm. we can bring that back into Buddhist practice as well, where the um, I really love the four immeasurable work. Mm-hmm. Um, really, yeah. with the preliminaries, which most Westerners skip over because they want to get to the Zogchenma, which are kind of <laughs> stuff. I want full enlightenment right now, but it's like let's actually create a foundation in the heart of openness and goodness and heartfeltness that we can rely on for mm. whenever the whenever the afflictive stuff comes up. We can actually. S- cultivate and send the antidote to the afflictive tendencies of mind mm. which can be a, just loving kindness compassion um, sending sympathetic joy out into the world is really nice <laughs> it yeah. gets reflected back yeah. to you 
and then cultivating the the um, the quantum states of mind. Equanimity. Yeah. 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 So the four immeasurables is a very traditional Buddhist teaching and practices that are directly helping what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I think having the understanding of attachment theory will help a lot of contemporary people a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's literally uh, because, a yeah. It's literally a handbook of how to yeah work your nervous system and relate in the world. And if we didn't if we didn't get that handbook passed down in a real clean way from our parents, yeah. then we have a distorted one. And mm -hmm. that's a hard way to live. Because mm -hmm. we're relying on using anger, shutdown, dissociation, mm. all that kind of stuff to regulate ourselves instead of being able to just lean into the safety of someone else. And then to like put another piece into that point that you brought up just a bit back that you were <laughs> chewing on. Um, there's so much that happens inside of the, inside of child and adults around the attachment piece. But one of the big things you can really, one of the ways you can look at attachment is basically the insecure attachment strategies are all some form of dissociation. Oh, interesting. There was something that was intolerable for the child, and there was nowhere like there was nowhere to turn, nowhere to process that. So that pain gets squirreled away behind a subcortical block or a wall of dissociation. Mm -hmm. So that it was overwhelming at the time, or yeah. not able to be with it, or deal with it, mm -hmm. or navigate it, or yeah. be supported there. Yep. And it's all that stuff that gets put put behind that wall that the like the person can't see because because mm -hmm. it. It's a system that's designed to keep us alive. So it takes something that's so overwhelming and just gets rid of it, gets it out of yeah. our conscious awareness, but it just lives in our body. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. I think it's such a rich conversation. I could probably mm -hmm. talk about it forever. Yeah, there's a lot to go <laughs> I think that um, one thing that I've found to be so helpful for myself and with people I work with that's directly Buddhist psychology, mm -hmm. you know, to call it what it is really, I mean, is the fundamental Buddhist teachings of no self to understand that not so much as um, there's something called a self that we have to get rid of, like that would be the wrong way to go about yeah. it in my opinion. Yeah, yeah very much so. But, <laughs> but rather that, yeah, to, to loosen up and, and loosen up whatever we're identified with and as. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes these dysfunctional patterns and attachment wounding you're speaking of are core parts of our identity. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, that we learned how to regulate in those ways. And mm -hmm. in order to learn new ways and then have those new ways become our baseline, become our home, become our normal, we have to disidentify with the old ways and identify with the newer, healthier ways. Mm -hmm. Right? It's yeah. pretty simple. Yeah, and that's it's a it's tough work. It can be challenging work. Well, that's why it's a practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the piece with the like the four immeasurable work, especially like somatic four immeasurable mm -hmm. work. Not just you don't just do don't just do the practices as a conceptual piece. It's like really bringing it into the body, opening the heart. Um, really coming from the from the space of the heart, um, and we do that as a practice. I mean, day in and day out, so that when those afflictive tendencies, that conditioning starts mm. to arise, we have a place to go in for our or for refuge. Mm. Like we have our own heart as our own refuge, and we can see the the ways that we try to protect ourselves coming up and we can come back to our heart, keep it open. Mm -hmm. And basically to the afflictive stuff, say like, you know, not today, Satan. Um, <laughs> and, and that's 
that's where like the appropriate use of say like repression is but like oh there's this desire in me to try to regulate myself through this way that i learned when i was so young mm. i'm not going to do that right now and i'm going to do these things that are actually good for me mm. and i'm yeah. going to i'm going to do those when so, i when I like practice this stuff when i don't need it like i do right now in this moment um so that when when the challenge arises i can fall back on the on the goodness of, of the practices i've cultivated yeah um, and the the antidote becomes stronger than the poison yeah nice yeah oh yeah that's good and it makes it so much more real and practical mm -hmm. than like it's you know i think it's what our meditation practice should be doing it should be it's a mental training mm -hmm. you know it's not just having some experience or something it's yeah it's yeah. a whole body mind training of, yeah of, yeah uh, meditation practices Learn, like we're learning from the inside out how to work with our autonomic nervous system and how to yeah. control and regulate it. And we're not taught that in school. And it's the most important thing <laughs> we do. Like we walk around with it all day. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I said mental training because it's there's so many books and texts and teachers, and like that's the translation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of yeah. want to write, if I, in my ideal world, I would have sit down and make the time to do this, but maybe one day I will, but like, I think other people are talking about this, but like the word mind, that's mm -hmm. in Sanskrit or Pali or Tibetan, and it's getting translated as our, our word mind. Mm -hmm. We hear that and we're like, oh, here's our mind and here's our body and mm -hmm. maybe here's our heart and our emotion, you know, and we have all these separations and it's like, no, it's like everything is consciousness and yeah. I like the word consciousness better. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could say that, but like, every, you know, it's, <laughs> It's very it's, much the, the word mind gets us in trouble. Yeah, the, what you said was right. It's not a mind training separate from our body and emotions and nervous system. It's all of that together. Mm -hmm. It's all together. Yeah. Yeah. And people that grow up with a lot of trauma, they can't actually feel into their bodies. Mm. And from what I've seen, like all the real, the real deal um, contemplative teachings out there, they're all going into the heart. They're all going mm -hmm. into the body. It's not mm -hmm. just the cognitive aspect which is just another sensecape in in my tradition where it's like all the thinking all of that the reflecting it's just a sensecape just like yeah um, hearing and tasting um smelling touching mm -hmm. it's just another way information comes in and so many people get wrapped up in the thinking mind thinking that's who we are and very much not and being able to like relax that level of identification and being able to like open into the into the body and to be able to like yeah. expand the sense of identity outside of this little meat suit that we're wearing <laughs> and be able to recognize it's like oh like i can feel the entire room and i can feel this other person and we're profoundly interconnected interdependent and interpenetrating mm -hmm. and those those are part of the that particular phrase is part of the morning service in my um, lineage oh beautiful and it was that um those scenes that like sent me on pretty much a 10-year journey at this point of recognizing like okay if the truth of the matter is that we are interconnected interpenetrating interdependent what does that mean and what can we do with it and the deeper you mm. look at that the more recognition of like oh wow we are profoundly connected and like all of your autonomic nervous systems impacting mine over here we're not separate in that way we're actually designed to feel each other on these um, non-cognitive 
levels and to be able to read, um, say, emotional states from afar. And that's like what a what a really healthy like tribe and connection is able to do. Hmm. And there's this whole there's whole rabbit holes we could go down with oh. that one. That's interesting. The evolutionarily, like in the past, when we're in the tribe, mm-hmm. there's these profound levels of communication happening mm-hmm. that we've lost touch with yeah, yeah. in our modern world. Do you have a, a sense of the percentage of people in our society that are securely attached versus not? The literature says 50%. 50%. Are, are securely attached. Can you imagine if we had 50% of our population that was like <laughs> suffering from heart disease or lung cancer, you know, we'd be freaking out. Yeah. 50% are not securely attached. Yeah. And all the people that I know that are in, like really in the attachment world are like, where are those people? (laughs) (laughs) Really? Not not paying 200 an hour to come to see them. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I should understand, you know, the biased uh, clientele on that one, but it's. In theory, it's something you can measure to center you scientifically. Yeah. Attachment theory is the only, um, personality typing test that's scientifically accepted and validated. That's amazing. Yeah. I don't know if I realize that fully. Yeah. So, There's been a lot of controversy in psychology around exper- classic experiments that aren't being replicated. Mm-hmm. Like they rerun the yeah. experiment. It's not the yeah. same. And attachment is like cross-culturally validated. And, and we see it in animals and it seems mm-hmm. like just so clear that it's yeah. a, a real thing, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it seems, it's, it makes a lot of sense that our natural state, you know, as we evolved, was to mostly create attached, secure attachment, right? That the insecure, is that the right phrasing? Insecure attachment yeah. cells, that mm-hmm. they would arise in times of crisis. Right? Yeah. Because they do, they are, they do have evolutionarily adaptive strategies that help when things aren't going well, mm-hmm. right? Like if yeah, you know, it's, the avoidant one might help you when there's no nutrients there. Yeah, there's like superpowers that can happen with all of them. Um, yeah, but also a lot yeah, it's of good, weaknesses. Good to name that piece. Yeah, so when when times are tough, they can be they can be adaptive. Um, but <clears> in our um, in our societies, like arguably, like you know, times don't have to be tough right now. Um, it's interesting. I don't want to make the past into some perfect ideal. For sure, it was life was hard always, and people mm-hmm. suffer, and there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening throughout history. Um, but what we can do at the very least is become a more informed society <laughs> mm-hmm. and try to just design a culture, like yep. you know, culture in a lab, we're growing bacteria, like here we're a human culture, we're growing humans. Like mm-hmm. how do we create a human world that is contributing to more and more secure attachment, healthy upbringing versus mm-hmm. less? Like that would be a great yeah. good. And so it's not about trying to be perfect, but it's about like systems and information and knowledge and practices that can mm-hmm. that can help us evolve in the positive way. Yeah. Because being securely attached, and you can go from the insecure strategies into uh, secure ones, and then just for the listeners out there, the insecure ones are the avoidant, anxious, and then disorganized. Mm -hmm. And they're they're talked about in different ways and different systems, but that that just that works. Um, And being like having secure functioning and being securely attached, having secure sense of self is just a lot easier way to navigate the world instead of um, having to be um, responsive through these insecure strategies that get us to a close approximation of safety and okayness, but it's not the actual, it's not actual safety and um, co-regulation and, and okayness. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's very, very worthwhile to like dive into that work. 
and to dive into mm-hmm. both with a professional and then like, you know, there's some, there's some great resources out there that can really help people on that journey and take a lot of the learning curve off of it. And hmm. um, let's say a few of them, um, the therapist on censored podcast, the whole thing is oh, yeah. all about attachment. It's really, really good. Um, George Haas with the I'd Love You Keep Going podcast. He's very much, yeah, he's attachment and Buddhist practice. So he's, he's just a gem in there. Um, and then, um, oh God, what's his name? Um, Dr. Dan Siegel. Mm-hmm. He's got some great stuff. He's very, yeah. very attachment informed. All of his, um, super smart guy. Yeah. All of his, uh, books on kids are all like just profoundly, beautiful and powerful around raising it securely attached children. And the way they get parents to raise securely attached children is by reflecting on their own attachment strategies. Mm. And so they start to like, look at themselves and start to introspect. And be like, Oh, how, how did I emotionally regulate or get my needs met or feel safe, provide safety? Like, how did that happen for me as a kid? And how do I want to do it in really aligned ways for, for children as a, as I, mm. um, as I raise Ideally, securely attached kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so the good news is whatever attachment strategies you've learned, whatever issues and trauma you have, you can heal and you can move towards earned secure attachment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the good news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it takes, takes a bit of time, um, but with the right approach, right focus, like it can, you can make it happen and it will just dramatically change the quality of, of your life. And if People are out there that keep like dating people and finding themselves in the same like relationship dynamics. Mm-hmm. Like you're looking at your attachment patterning. Like mm-hmm. you're seeing it, seeing it right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Like, why do I always end up with guys like this? Or why why does this why do I always pull away like six months in or something like that? Yeah. And it's a really easy way to see it. Yeah. There's a question that's popping up for me. I'm curious how your answer is like it's some like it seems like some people are more or less addicted to a kind a kind of drama, mm-hmm. and that the constant drama, ups and downs, emotional turmoil is actually how they're feeling connected to their partner. Mm-hmm. How would you? What advice would you give to someone? Yeah. So generally, those patterns are going to come around when somebody grew up in a more chaotic environment, mm-hmm. and they get this imprint of chaos is normal. Chaos is what love is. Mm-hmm. And then we unconsciously like recreate that inside of our relationships because we just have that working model of like relationships are supposed to look like these ups and downs and valleys and all of that. Um, and um, that's usually more in the anxious attachment um, kind of things where we're like trying to get needs met by either caring for people or having issues that, that arise that people can come caretake us. Mm-hmm. And being able to like recognize that there's usually going to be some deeper need underneath the that chaos that you know people are recreating, and it's like, oh, I actually want to feel safe and seen and held. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but these patterns that I keep playing out aren't actually getting me that. Mm-hmm. Gets me a um, like a close approximation of it, but it's not actually the thing. Mm-hmm. And so people have to learn what it actually feels like to be held in safety with a partner and like just be able to be seen and known and like really um, regulated into a place of safety. Mm-hmm. And if we learned early on that we have to do all this up and down stuff to try to get some sort of connection, yeah, um, 
we have to learn another way of how to actually connect with people. Right. Uh, we have to learn to see that that pattern as the afflictive <clears throat> tendency and be like, yes. okay, not yeah. today. <laughs> Let me, what do I actually need right now? It's yeah. like, oh, I just want to be like, I want to be like wrapped up like a burrito and told I'm loved. Okay, great. Can <laughs> can somebody actually do that for me and actually show mm -hmm. up in that way? Mm -hmm. And and that's we have to like learn what those behaviors are. It's like learning like right back to the um, four measurable practices, the heart practices. It's like, okay, how do I actually like feel the regulation that I want in in the instead of going down those other pathways of maybe drinking or hmm. checking out or going down the Instagram rabbit holes for, for yeah. days and days and days. Um, how do I actually get my needs met? And I have to learn to like see what those are, actually know what they are, and then find somebody that can actually meet them. Hmm. And that's that's a whole that's a whole process and journey. Yeah, that's well said. Mm -hmm. It's good to speak to. I mean, there's all these different patterns. I know everyone's unique, but I think for some people, like they, I think the word addiction is a good one. I mean, I think mm -hmm. we're identified with or addicted to certain ways, and then. Mm -hmm. They hear about secure attachment. It might sound boring. <laughs> yes, <that's laughs> you actually need to like, hey, this is actually going to feel better and be happier yeah. and be, you know. Yeah. At some level, I think it's what we all really want, but yeah. Yeah. everyone I, sees that. It's a much nicer way to live. And addiction is very much, um, I mean, you can get, you can go into the hood of somebody that's dealing with addiction and there's 98% um, of the time going to be intense childhood traumas underneath there and they're, um, the addiction takes us away from the pain that's either in our present moment life or that's actually stored in our body. Hmm. All the traumatic memories that we didn't know how to process. Those things don't go away when it happens. It actually just stays in there. Hmm. And it builds, it can build up to where it's just hard to live. And we want to get away from our own experience. So we mm -hmm. um, go into um, addictions and uh, try to check out or go into high states of arousal, um, mm -hmm. you know, creating a lot of chaos, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And like the worst of it, like we're just trying to get away from ourselves because we never learned how to process that stuff. And when we find somebody that might be really, we'll say safe and secure, they might feel boring because <laughs> <laughs> we're used to the ups and downs or all that kind of stuff, chasing, having to like pull away from mm -hmm. things and just having this excitement that can distract us. Mm -hmm. But somebody that's actually there and just can like be present and useful like it can be it can seem very boring for people and we have to sort of learn how to like rewrite that yeah. pattern and find like how much goodness beauty and just like I mean, graciousness can be in just like real simple connections mm -hmm. where if we need a ton of stimulation to not uh, to not feel our own experience somebody that's able to just like healthily be there and be in relationship with us yeah. might not provide that. And yeah. so, so like insecurely attached people can have a securely attached person in front of them and they'll see boring, like, why do I want to do this? This person's too nice or whatever. And then they run off with the, with the let's see, bad decision. <laughs> um, and go into a very tumultuous relationship after that, usually. Um, and we have to learn like how much, like relearn or learn for the first time, like how much beauty can be in a connection where it's like, oh, wow, like I really feel safe. Mm. I really feel held by this person. And now we can open up to like how much um, innate goodness or mm. 
well-being can arise inside of that kind of connection. And one of the things I talk about um, decent amount is like with like tantra practice, um, like and mostly neo tantra practice is what people are doing in the West. Yeah. Um, people are going into these tantric experiences, workshops, whatever, to open up into sort of new expanded states of being or like new novel aspects. Like, mm-hmm. how good can this feel over here? But they're not sustainable because they don't learn what the actual embodied safety is and how do we bring safety into this new area of being mm-hmm. and maintain this this newness of openness. Mm-hmm. Instead of chasing after new experiences, it's like secure right. attachment and embodied safety can allow us to open to a new experience and then we can actually embody it. And if we can do that with a beloved partner, like the amount of mm-hmm. um, UD turn on connection, just like goodness can get really big. Yeah. Um, especially yeah. when you're generating that in yourself, they're generating it, you're sharing in that. Like we, yeah. we can bring well being to the table. Mm-hmm. We can bring um, pleasure to the table. Mm-hmm. That's not um, caused because we're chasing something, but it's because we're like bringing this, like this quality of being through our, through our openness to the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, like, that is nourishing, and that is, like, very, very deeper level. Yeah, yeah, much more, much deeper level, because we're not, we're not taught how to identify that stuff. In right. Cultures, we're taught we need to go do the things. We need to go do retail <laughs> therapy, shopping therapy, shopping that, kind of, that kind of stuff to <laughs> feel better instead of actually, yeah. like, reflecting on, oh, what's my state of mind? What are the afflictive states of mind? And what are the, like, wholesome, nurturing states of mind? And how do mm-hmm. I drop into that and open into that? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's kind of the same old story of there's something outside of me that I need to get. Mm-hmm. And it could be material stuff you're shopping, but it can also be like you're talking about like chasing after experiences. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the day, you're not finding the fulfillment you really want. You yeah. know, it's that old saying, looking for love in all the wrong places. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. part of the human drama. I can relate. <laughs> I mean, I've done that enough for myself. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to be able to find that connection. I think what you're speaking is so beautiful and it can, I think, I was just at this um, Buddhist retreat in Northern California, so I'm like swimming in those waters again in my mind a lot, but um, I asked a question of one of the teachers there, you know, around community and connection and there's so much of an emphasis on meditation practice It's often a solitary thing, you're doing it on your own mm-hmm. and you do a solitary retreat or this or that. And he said, well, I don't see a contradiction there because if you're really meditating, even though you're maybe in a little hut on your own, you're actually connecting with all beings. Mm-hmm. And like he quoted uh, this beautiful song by Milarepa. Mm-hmm. It's like, people think I'm alone in this mountain cave, but I'm here with everyone. Mm-hmm. And so that's a beautiful <laughs> thing. I've been sitting with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we, have the, we have the mistaken belief that we're separate. Right from people, life, things, um, and we experientially can uh, take that apart and recognize that we are profoundly interconnected. And with that being the case, then for me arises a question, like, what do we do with that? And like, how do I, mm-hmm. how do I bring qualities into a space that I would say want to see there? And it's very much by being them. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I awaken these, these capacities of, body mind inside of myself 
and bring them to a space and be able to share, let's say, share freely with people on that experience. And whether we're whether we're in a uh, say mountain hut by ourselves or we're actually like, engaged in the world with people, like those those qualities are very. Uh, we take them with us wherever we go, uh, and there's mm-hmm. just a particular there's a particular depth that we can cultivate like on our own, but then also being able to share that with people and mm-hmm. like really uh, have these like really just deep and profound connections where it's like, whoa, like this person like really sees all of me and can hang out in the spacious qualities of mind while we're actually in connection. Mm-hmm. And that can, yeah, that can be pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's beautiful. Yeah. Mm. I guess I'm having one other question pop mm-hmm. up for me. It's partly from my own journey and something I've certainly noticed is I'm all about community. I've been involved in a lot of communities and mm-hmm. I guess it can happen. Um, for sure it happens in relationship. It happens in community, but it's a, it's a resentment mm-hmm. and if resentment builds up. It's like the poison that would have someone act out or destroy something or mm-hmm. end a relationship or, and so yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts. I mean, it's kind of an open-ended thing, but yeah. living together is great or like being in community is great, but there's issues that are going to come up and mm-hmm. people get resentful. Like, mm-hmm. How do we, we need some ways, some practices to like release that. And Yeah, there's um, learning how to deal with conflict and rupture repair is such a big piece. And like, I didn't take any classes on that. <laughs> yeah, we're not growing, taught growing that. Up, we're not taught yeah. relational intelligence whatsoever. Um, so like really... Being able to know ourselves well enough to know that that resentment is there and then having the capacity or the, the skillfulness or the artfulness to be able to bring it forward mm. and um, share it with somebody in a way that it can be um, met somehow mm-hmm. and ideally like uh, work through yeah. um, is a powerful skill and like we all need a lot of that Yeah, because <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's really necessary and one of the resources I send my clients to is like Jason Gaddis's book, uh, Getting to Zero, mm-hmm. which is a really lovely handbook of how to do that, or like Nine Bond Communication is really good stuff for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but very much those those withholds that um, mm-hmm. hang out in our system. Um, we have to be able to learn to see those and be like, okay, let me, can I release this myself or can I work it with somebody else? Because they will just build up in our in our system. They, they become those that weight that we carry around with us yeah and we can try to avoid it but it still impacts the quality of our experience yeah like it still it yeah. lives inside of us and it takes a toll yeah. and so we we have to be able to see it know that it's there um, recognize and, it yeah and then be like okay what do i want to do with this and how can i how can i resolve this and actually get my needs met in an open-hearted way versus blaming and shaming and, yeah I'm going off on somebody. You're doing all the all the various self-destructive stuff we like to do. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, sometimes we can resolve things just within our own self and our own process, mm-hmm. or with a therapist. Sometimes we need to have a conversation with someone, mm-hmm. have a process mm-hmm. with the person or community or group. I just think it's um, in our world today when, like, some of the problems and issues, like in society at large. Like, I'm thinking about things like the terrible mass shootings mm-hmm. and. Uh, like all the bullying that's happening online or the attacking people and tearing them down. And it's like, it's just like resentment quality of it builds up and Mm -hmm. envy and resentment. And and I think, yeah, just like, we just need to like 
have processes and feels like an important conversation for culture at large to talk about more. Mm-hmm. Like it plays out in politics a lot, right? Oh, yeah. It's, it's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it just muddies the water so much. Yeah. You know? That's as we've increased in technological capacity and complexity, like our relational skill sets haven't, haven't kept up pace. Right. And that's like such a big piece that we need. Like, we've said a few times like we weren't given relational intelligence like we weren't taught it growing up in schools like it's not in our societal cultural milieu and we all like we need that kind of understanding that kind of capacity to be able to work through these challenges or difficulties be able to like understand people from different perspectives and be, mm-hmm. be able to recognize like okay they they hold a different perspective and like that's okay for them where they're at and I hold a different perspective and like things can be, we can, we can handle that complexity Mm -hmm. and like being able to like really work that through in our own system. And there's so many pieces to it. Yeah. (laughs) Big thing. Yeah. Um, But the more, the more, let's say like really relational intelligence we can get, like it's a cool phrase, the easier it becomes and both being able to, work our own stuff out, be able to work stuff out with our partners or coworkers, because those are all those are all relationships. Those are all mm-hmm. like family dynamics play out the whole thing. Yeah. And being able to work that in those relationships and then expanding that out to um, the greater spheres that we connect and can touch with is um, really valuable and important important. Yeah. So important. And Such it, good work. And it makes a really big difference. Like one of the one of my favorite practices to do is like listen to some of the pointing out instructions around um, the four immeasurable stuff um, for measurable practices like working mm-hmm. tongue plan or compassion and listen to them while like walking up and down Pearl Street in Boulder where there's a lot of people uh-huh. and, like actively like work that when I'm around um, folks and it, like the impact on my system is so immediate and so notable mm-hmm. um, it's definitely something I would recommend to folks if we're going to put our earbuds <laughs> in and stroll around for a bit like it's a cool idea yeah like really opening a walking meditation <laughs> yeah really opening our hearts to other people around other people where it's not just something that we're doing um in the meditation hut in the mountains it's mm-hmm. we can actually take it into the world and, and work it and like really feel the the impact and the difference yeah that's cool mm-hmm. i love that i'm gonna try that martin <laughs> and that yeah that realization for me came around where and I was like first like really diving into these practices and had recently gone up through a breakup with a woman and it was mm-hmm. left in a pretty crunchy space. Like, you know, the universe conspired to where I'd be listening to the practices and like I'd literally park and go to walk down to uh, Pearl Street and like she would park across the street and get <laughs> out of her car. And like you'd the, see each other like randomly? Yeah, just totally, like, entire, entirely it's randomly. It's not random it, by chance. <laughs> yeah, but like the first first time it happened, I was like, there she is. Jesus, I got to deal with this. Oh, wow. um, but then like it kept happening. <laughs> and <laughs> Totally like, unplanned. Yeah, totally unplanned. That's it amazing. kept happening. <laughs> like I just like kept watching the softening in my heart where I was like, oh, like, mm. um, one of the big things with resentments and anger is like, we have to recognize when, you know, we can be angry at somebody, but at a certain point there comes a time where like, I'm just holding the anger yeah, or I'm holding the resentment. And then at that point, like 
I'm the one doing damage to me. Yeah. And it was like listening to those practices, seeing her in person, just like right there. Oh, yeah. um, and recognize like, oh, like I'm, I'm holding this in my heart for somebody that like arguably very much loved and was like in deep intimate connection with at mm-hmm. points. Like why, what's the point of holding this? Let me go ahead and like, yeah, isn't it lay, amazing that that, let me lay down the sword yeah. and like, um, like fix this relationship. So we, so we don't have to do this. Hmm so I don't have to hold these things. And then we like became really good friends afterwards. Oh, good. That's yeah. powerful. That's amazing. Yeah. I was going to say, it's amazing how we can feel the most anger, resentment, <laughs> hatred, whatever, to the people that we were closest to. Mm-hmm. But then we break up or whatever happens. And, mm-hmm. But it's like, like we used to say, like, wow, like maybe the whole time we were together was like so loving. Mm-hmm. Why now all of a sudden? Yeah. Yeah, where was, where <laughs> it needs logic to undo some of those patterns. Yeah, and where was that point that I need to bring any men or I have to protect. And like, yeah. how long do I want to hold that? Um, we want to have healthy boundaries with people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's necessary. And that's usually in compassion work. People are like, what about boundaries? It's like, no, we want skillful, healthy boundaries. And sometimes we have to like have people out of our lives with those boundaries. But that doesn't mean we have to hold resentment and hatred in our own heart. We can yes, still yeah. very much love somebody with boundaries in place. Yeah. And we can say, I can love you from <laughs> over here <laughs> and you stay over there. And that's great. And uh, we can have compassion and loving kindness and yeah. that for you. And I, and I don't have to hold the hostility towards the person because I'm the one holding it and it's impacting me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like holding a burning ember mm-hmm. burns yourself. Yeah. That's big cortisol releases and adrenaline and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. It's really hard on us. It can feel really hard to, takes a lot of maturity and mm-hmm. honesty to, to recognize that in yourself and do whatever you need to let, let it go and heal it. And, um, there's some, a saying that I like a lot. It's like, if you're, you know, whatever happened to you, it's not necessarily your fault, especially trauma or stuff from your childhood or mm-hmm. the situation you were born into yeah. or your partner said that thing. It's not, you don't have to blame yourself. It's not your fault, but it's your responsibility to heal it because you're the one holding it mm-hmm. you know it's yeah it's life <laughs> like yeah. we kind of have to we got to show up for it mm-hmm. no one can really do that for you mm-hmm. you know yeah and we can try to do a lot of spiritually bypassy stuff to <laughs> let me just take my emotions and push them under under the surface or we can like do the harder work but it's you know directly facing it's like okay what's in here what can i do on my own to alleviate the suffering that I'm experiencing where do I need to bring somebody in that can really do the heavy lifting with me mm-hmm. um, and then like how do I actually build a healthy community and set of friends and life outside of that yeah exactly yeah mm-hmm. yeah and a good therapist can help you with the heavy lifting it's mm-hmm. a good analogy yeah yeah way to put it yeah definitely say uh, required for some of the deeper stuff yeah it's an interesting thing I think I sometimes feel this in myself and I'm other people do too the told me about it they're like oh, why do i have to go to see a therapist or go see this healer or coach or whatever and it's like that's how our society works like obviously in indigenous societies there wasn't you know that wasn't someone's job you didn't the, there wasn't a money exchange around it, but there would be other ways in which that could happen yeah they had healing rituals and yeah practices that were just part like so much a part of the more culture. In, more integrated yeah I'm sympathetic to people who they're like, why do I have to, you know, pay for this? Why do I have to do this? And mm-hmm. 
that's just, you know, that's our, our culture is everything is in exchange for money. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that's part of the wounding that a lot of us are carrying. They're like, you know, it's bad enough that I was abused as a child. Now I have to spend all this time and money. Mm-hmm. You know, you see that resentment there, that piece. It's like, mm-hmm. we got we to gotta be able to help that heal because that's like you're just saying that's going to be hurting you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's very much, um, I mean, it can be really powerful to bring in somebody that has a great amount of expertise. And then one of the things that I've really been loving seeing is the um, having all these like books and YouTube videos and like Instagram channels that um, talk about like yeah. well-being and like what are what are healthy relationship um, practices and things like that that are just much more accessible. Like with my like uh, yeah. social media feeds, like I curate them to be like reflective to where it's like okay, here's somebody giving really good and beautiful advice on all these topics instead of just seeing the unending revolving shit of the world out there <laughs> um, which is you know that's that's good advice actually you can open up your app and consciously you know bring mindfulness and click unfollow like three thousand times and eventually you'll, <laughs> you know you can curate it yeah, yeah. but it takes some intentionality and because yeah, a lot of us are addicted to the scroll and we kind of want to see that crap so <laughs> so if we're going to be seeing it as well see things that are actually good for us and yeah healthy instead of the things that speak to the lowest common denominator yeah um but the piece around the resentment of like why do I have to pay somebody to go in and feel this like unfortunately um just because like it's we'll say such a specialized thing at this point Hmm. like how do we be like healthy human beings (laughs) (laughs) um that that knowledge isn't widely out there like paying somebody for their expertise to come in and help us with both the, we'll say the heavy lifting, but there's also a nervous system and nervous system regulation thing that happens inside of that mm-hmm. where like the client can borrow the safety of the, of the practitioner. Mm-hmm. And so their nervous system can feel that, that, Oh, like I, as the, as the um, practitioner, I'm not, um, I'm not dysregulated mm-hmm. and I can hold them in their, in their parts sometimes for like couples that can be i see that being a lot harder um where it's harder to take that little bit of like that say just that step back approach where it's like oh yeah i can i am here to be with your suffering and be with all the parts and be with the trauma and and hold you in it Mm -hmm. and help you work through it and but i'm not going to like step in there and be in it with you Mm. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get dysregulated while you're dysregulated. I'm gonna mm. do the work over here to stay profoundly regulated in the face of um, intense traumas and intense um, processing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's good. That's a good thing. Then, as we train people how to do that more and more, more people learn. We can actually do it for each other as as a society and friends groups and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. Um, for sure, there's a lot of good free resources out there, and there's a lot of stuff online. There's a lot mm-hmm. of you know YouTube. You don't yeah. have to pay for that, right? Really. Yeah. And, um. So yeah, that's good. Yeah, you can do all sorts of. There's all sorts of master classes on YouTube around <laughs> like narcissism <laughs> and borderline, this and that. So you can and attachment and like there's so there's, many online classes. Yeah. But we have to commit the time to absorbing that recognizing that like okay there's a different way that we can live how do i want to do that i've, I've got 
if somebody's uh, 25 years of conditioning and living in another way, you got to put some time into shifting those patterns. And, yeah, and be patient and mm-hmm. put time into it. Yeah, because we're, we're, when we're doing healing work or trauma work or um, um, meditation work, we're literally changing our neurobiology. Yeah. We're literally just step by step changing that. And we have to like put some, let's say, some intense energy into it once we get above like 25 mm-hmm. for the real neuroplastic stuff to to happen because like with the insecure attachment strategies our brains get wired in a certain way mm. and so we learn how to regulate and relate to the world through certain channels might we might be more alert for fear might be more alert into the environment people that are startled easily um they're tuned in for threat mm. in in the world and that's where that's just the baseline for their nervous system then you have yeah. to retrain them to be able to exist in a different state of being and we're literally retraining the neurobiology to run a different way we're like we're like wearing a path in um, deeper and deeper channels um bit by bit but we have to sort of shift from like the direction that we've been going for so long and shift it to this other way and um, cut these deeper channels in um, yeah and some other other avenues other yeah. ways of being <laughs> on a journey <laughs> mm-hmm. it's amazing how if you are doing this kind of work and you're working on yourself you can start to see that when you're triggered first of all when you're really triggered it's hard to see that in the moment mm-hmm. but second of all how real it feels how true it feels <laughs> but then later you wake up the next day or mm-hmm. Somehow you gain some perspective and you're like, oh, that, that was not true. <laughs> ah, but at the moment it felt so true. Yeah. And you can understand why people, like terrible things happen and why people get in fights and why, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's amazing how our mind yeah. um, is creating the, the reality that we're experiencing and yeah. got to get a handle on it. So one thing I've helped some people with is like when you're in that state of being triggered, whatever it is for you, you can have an anchor in, I know this isn't real. Like that can be helpful. Even if it's just a little thought in the background that you can kind of repeat a few times and just wait it out. Sometimes that's the best strategy just to wait it out. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I mean, a pretty immense amount of my work is like working directly without people where it's mm-hmm. being able to recognize, okay, when did we get activated or triggered? Like, mm-hmm. like okay. Like, when that happens, we have to know that like our prefrontal cortex is shutting down. That's the very first thing that happens, and all these survival instincts are kicking in. And so our, our baser animal level is taking over. Mm-hmm. And we have the our native ways of what we do with that and how do we try to get back to a place of safety or get our needs met inside of that state. And we have to first recognize that it's happening. And um, like one of the big questions a lot of people ask is like, do I feel safe or not? Oh yeah. And if we don't ask yourself that. Yeah, yeah, if we don't feel safe, then we know we're usually probably going to be in some sort of level of activation. It's changing that time. And we we need to address that. And if we don't feel if we don't feel safe or we recognize we're activated or triggered, we need to know that like our only job in that moment becomes like how do I get back to a place of safety in my system? Mm. Uh, because it's like an interesting message to share with people. Mm-hmm. So make that your focus and priority rather than the trying to problem solve or fix something or attack someone or whatever yeah. the triggered mind wants to do. Yeah, because we're we're literally in a different state of consciousness yeah. and it's not a, it's not as capable. Yeah. Um, and so we have to literally get out of that and then we can try to address the problem, mm-hmm. whatever that was. 
like the, the activations or the triggered states are there to keep us alive. They're there for us to survive. They're not there for us to have the full complexity of human functioning. <laughs> it's like there's a bear in the in the bushes over there and I need to run away from it. Right. And that's what it's good for. It's not like it's not good for like I'm activated and now we're going to we're going to hash this out over the next four hours. Mm. Um it's it's not good for that. Yeah. Like we we yeah. have we have to we have to be in a different state to to like really work through things. Mm-hmm. And so being able to recognize like yes, I'm triggered, I'm activated. Mm what do I do with this now? And usually with my clients, we'll work through um, things they can do to re-regulate themselves prior to that. So you literally have a sheet of paper in front of you with like the resources that you know that regulate you, like music, food, go on a walk, take a bath, have some tea, like Mm -hmm. all these things are good for you. And so instead of being in the trigger more, the, the afflictive mind state, we can look at this thing. It's like, okay, these, I know these things regulate me. What do I need to do right now? Let me pick this one. I'm going to make a cup of tea, go on a walk and listen, listen to the birds and just like breathe and like down regulate my system and then come back to mm. whatever it is that activated me and try to work through it from a much more grounded and centered and capable state of mind versus the triggered states of mind. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Hey. I had an interesting experience recently with dysregulation <laughs> myself where I think I shared this with you the other day. I'm driving to get to the airport. Mm-hmm. There's terrible traffic and I left later than I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I got really activated and there was like an anger energy and I drove, I was safe, you know, I, dr- I drove faster, more aggressively cutting mm-hmm. across these lanes of traffic Navigating, it was like a 10-lane highway. It was one of these crazy highways. This was in California. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to the airport on time, returned the rental car, got my checked bag in, made it to the gate. But I noticed my nervous system was like, you know, for several hours, honestly. And like, but the other thing I was thinking about with it is, had I not gotten activated like that, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have made my flight. Yeah. And so I was kind of like, I don't know if this was worth it or not, but mm-hmm. I'm going to spend the rest of this day like <laughs> dysregulating, <laughs> but at least I made the flight. Yeah. And so there's, um, so you went into a sympathetic state, which is yeah. where, where you go into, it's like the fight or flight. I was in fight or flight. Yeah. And I was. And yeah. those, those states aren't inherently bad. Um, when there's, there's a whole world of polyvagal theory and Deb Dana does really great explorations of this i won't go down that rabbit hole just because it takes it's, it's a whole another hour conversation to really get into the details there but basically um when we can stay both like regulated but we can also bring in that energy of like oh i need to handle this thing now I bring in that yeah, activation that's what i was trying to do <laughs> I don't know, well, that's, that's a particular skill it's like okay i need to do this thing but yeah. i'm not gonna like there's a difference between bringing in like sort of the clean energy mm-hmm. like okay let's make this thing happen mm-hmm. versus like the anger and the, mm-hmm. the upset and still doing it where it's like okay like i've got to go and i've got to make this happen now let's let's bring in the energy yeah. to be able to like let me go ahead and whip through traffic and do the speaking to the airport thing and make sure that my needs are getting met yeah um, and one way we can look at that is like in a very healthy expression it's play like if we go mm. play like frisbee with our friends, we go rock climbing. We want to bring uh, energy in, yeah, yeah, and be able Beautiful. to do that. That's great. Yeah, and so that's where those that's where those systems are the healthy expressions of outlets. Yeah, and uh, 
like the shutdown or the freeze response, if we're if we're not um, centered, socially engaged, regulated, if we go into the shutdown, we just dissociate, and there's like, I mean, we're gone. We can go Netflix and um, hmm. like binge on Netflix for like five days straight. That can be one of the most difficult ones to work with. But yeah, yeah. Um, but then if we're regulated, and then we go into that deep down regulation. Then we're talking meditative states. We're talking deep co-regulation, deep mm. relaxation. Mm-hmm. And so we're using the same systems, but it's, are we, are we resilient enough to not to go too far off to the side of the system, but we're actually able to stay present, integrate the energy of whether it's activation or down regulation mm. of those and like hang out in those systems. And when people haven't had a lot of experience or, um, teaching of how to do that then right. it's it's harder right and that's that's where like resilience training like comes into play like how do we handle the stressors of life without getting pushed off the cliff yeah. but we can actually we can continue to handle stress and we live in very stressful times hmm. and once again we're not taught how to really handle stress or how to stay um regulated in the face of it mm-hmm. and there's um there's a lot of great practices out there for doing so and a lot of people just kind of like fall into it on accident but training training the body mind to be to stay regulated in the face of stress instead of going into um, fight or flight survival strategies is, is powerful it's work huge, and yeah. like, we did that as a society like we'd make um, mm. huge drives yeah yeah beautiful mm-hmm. oh, yeah got one last question okay. in my mind for you you got energy yeah okay yeah. So it makes me laugh. Monogamy, polyamory, mm-hmm. attachment theory. Mm-hmm. It's a big subject, but just maybe just briefly, like some of your thoughts on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if we can, no matter, I, oh, that's a big one too. Um, we can do securely attached relationships in so many different forms. Mm. So it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have to be a monogamous yeah, relationship. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be monogamous to be... Secure. I think that's like, a good message to share. Yeah. We can we, be more open-minded. Yeah, we can be... Because we're basically... Like, we're doing relationship in multiple different ways all the time anyways. Mm. Mm. And so there's like what... With our intimate partners, we, of course, want to have like secure functioning relationships with them, whether it's one or whether it's multiple. But then also coworkers. Mm. Um, other like extended family members, mm-hmm. um, we're in we're in attachment relationships with them. Mm-hmm. Um, close friends, we're in attachment relationships, mm-hmm. um, and then kids, of course, and like the wider community. And they they lessen with intensity as you get farther out, but yeah. we're still we're still want to do if we can. I like securely attached, natively securely attached person is going to respond securely to all of those different situations. Hmm. And say say that again. Uh, secure, like yeah. somebody raised with secure attachment is just going to naturally respond securely to all those situations. All of them. That's a that's a good thing to reflect on. Yeah, it's yeah. not just our intimate relationships. It's not just our close family members. Yeah. It could be an acquaintance. It could be a coworker. It can be it's all of our relationships. Bring it to all of that. I love that. And that's, that's so important. That's money. That's food. That's sex. Mm. That's power. Like attachment goes all the way down to the core. Yeah. And yeah. our attachment relationship to all of those things of how do we regulate ourselves and get our needs met. Mm-hmm. Both most people think it's just relationship, but it's also it's 
food, sex, money, power, like all of those things as well. Our core fundamental needs and yeah. things to work with. Yeah, because yeah. it is it is the map of how we learn to get our needs met, our self-worth, how we view ourselves, how other people view ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so the the basically the entirety of human experience, like it's set up based on our attachment strategies. Mm-hmm. And so it's such a pervasive thing. It's not just like, why do I get in a fight with my girlfriend or boyfriend? It's, it's much, much bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, okay. thanks for having me. For arranging the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to um, share with people where they can find you? Yeah. So um, I have a website, budonbrown.com. You can uh, reach out and see a little bit about some of the offerings that I have in the world. Um, oh, we didn't even talk about your tea. Yeah, there's that's a whole, that's a that's whole thing. conversation. <laughs> but I'm... Um, Deeply, we'll say deeply steeped in the world of tea. And tea is a contemplative practice and mm-hmm. um, mindful way out there. And I've built a meditation tea hut up in the mountains of, of Boulder. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Yeah, built that by hand over the course of six years and been using that. And now we're building a new tea space here in town where we'll actively build out community for really teaching the way of tea and going deeply into tea as a, as a spiritual practice, plant spirit medicine, opening up the reverence through that modality into the world. So it's a really beautiful way to connect with people, connect yeah. with ourselves and connect with nature. Yeah. And all at the same time. Yeah. And so that would be Boulder Tea Hut for that exploration um, that I both see clients in person for attachment work, uh, somatic attachment repair mm-hmm. specialists say how to build that. And then also do a lot of stuff on Zoom. On Zoom. Yes. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.